You're listening to the Roel Wallenberg Institute's podcast on human rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. On Human Rights is a podcast from the Roel Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Elin Williams, and for this episode we have with us a very special guest. With us today is Professor Emeritus Jaran Melander, one of the founders of the Roel Wallenberg Institute. Welcome to On Human Rights, Jaran, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let's start by looking at the world today. There seems to be so many challenges. Of course, it's a lot of challenges, and uh, I can agree that the world is... It could be worse, anyway. I mean, uh, what has been done after the establishment of the UN in the field of human rights uh, and humanitarian laws, in a way, uh, incredible. I mean, a number of steps have been... Uh, taken forward and, and uh, in a way I think the world is basically much better today than it used to be. So it's just to continue with the work in the field of human rights. And the situation for the refugees? It's a disaster for uh, the number of refugees but of course it's basically because of the situation in Syria for the time being and in Afghanistan. And uh, it's just to be hoped that uh, this problem will be solved in the future. And if so, I'm rather convinced that, uh, not least in the, with respect to refugees from Syria, most, the majority of them will go back. So it's a temporary protection uh, they are in need of. It might be another situation with the refugees from Afghanistan uh, or Iraq. I mean, it's um, a little bit more problematic and, and um, it's not enough. It's not an uh, armed conflict ongoing in those countries, in the same way at least. So I think it's uh, other reason for them to, to leave the country of origin. Mm. You're calling it a catastrophe, but I mean, what do you think that... I'm thinking a lot about what, what I can do. I mean, I'm not a professor in human rights law. <laughs> I can't solve the problem uh, either. I mean, it, it's um, for the international community to try to solve the problem, and, and uh, it will take some time. But of course it will hopefully be solved sooner or later. Sooner, I hope. So you're hopeful? Yeah, I think there are reasons to be... There are at least some rumors that there will be ongoing negotiations to solve the Syrian conflict. Uh, and that would uh, help quite a lot. Okay. You have a lifelong commitment to human rights behind you. But how did it all begin for you? How it... I don't remember how it began, but... Uh, the only thing I, I was or has always been interested in the field. I started with uh, refugee law, so so my I, my doctoral thesis is on on refugee law, and then it just continued, uh, and broadened a little bit with human rights law and uh, later also with humanitarian law. So I hope to cover all both human rights, humanitarian law, and refugee law. So that was my main interest. Then I also noted that in uh, there was no real structure when it comes to studying human rights law. Uh, at, not in Sweden, not, uh, in particular in the law school at uh, Lund University. So I started to discuss the possibility to establish an institute. And uh, then uh, I, together with Leif Holmström, 
who was then uh, also connected to the university, we, we applied for a, for a grant from a Swedish foundation, and we were granted some uh, a limited number, a limited sum of money, and then we established the institute. Uh, so and that's 1984. That was ni 1984, yes. And that was easily done to establish it, and then it has grown. <laughs> Considerably, so, I would say. What are the biggest breakthroughs for the institute? Well, first of all, I think the break, the establishment was, of course, an important step. But another in, uh, rather important step was that we were allowed, or then as a fact member of the faculty, uh, we were allowed to have courses for the, uh, for the law students in the field of human rights, and it turned out to, to uh, be a great interest to the law students. So it was quite obvious that it was important to give courses in the field of human rights. And that was uh, later on we established a master program in human rights and recruited students not only from Lund but from other universities in Sweden as well as, as, well as foreigners. And I think that uh, that was a, an important breakthrough. Uh, and I think that also made the Institute quite well known abroad because we got applications from almost all countries in the world to attend the, human rights, uh, the master program in human rights. It also has to do with the fact that in, when it was established, uh, there were only one other university in the world having a master program in human rights, namely Essex University. Mm. So we was the second university, and we had slightly different approaches compared to Essex. Um, first of all, it was a little bit longer, and, and um, it has to do with the provisions on this university. Anyway, it turned out that we got students actually from all parts of the world. Uh, and that was quite interesting. I think that, so that was the first breakthrough. It's, should of course add that this master program is still ongoing, and we, to my knowledge, we the university gets about between one to two thousand applications every year. Oh, wow! So it's uh, quite a number of applications, and of course that has led. That means that the institute has become known all over the world. So I think that's one advantage, quite, or perhaps a positive step. So how has the Institute changed over the years? Yeah, then uh, the second uh, thing which happened was that CEDA, the Swedish Development Agency, contacted me and asked if we were interested to contribute to disseminating human rights in uh, third world countries. And we accepted it, and uh, that meant that we started to cooperate with CEDA. Uh, the first years, rather limited, of course, but uh, and we provided a number of uh, actually courses, short, relatively relatively short courses for various target groups in in various countries. I think the first course was in Namibia, uh, which took place in 1990. Or 1991, uh, and that activity has grown considerably. Uh, and I think uh, 
that was an activity which, uh, in my view, is, was quite important. Important. These fairly short courses to particular target groups, like, for instance, judges, police, correctional service. Um, parliamentarians, of course, and with, which is more not that easy to get access to the parliamentarians, but we succeeded in a few countries, and and uh, but that also meant that in these countries human rights became on the map in those countries. So I think that's uh, partly quite effective, and we have noted in some countries the improvement uh, in the field of human rights in a, a few countries where we have been quite active and, and um, so I think it's um, uh, one of the best methods. Then you have to concentrate on various target groups, that is to say uh, when you provide information or disseminate, disseminate, disseminate human rights you have to uh, turn to those who violate human rights not the people at large. It's a huge task and not, uh, we are not able to do that, or the Institute is not able to do that. But if you concentrate on particular target groups, namely those who in particular are responsible for violating human rights, uh, that might have an effect. That must be hard work. Of course it's a hard work. Uh, I travelled, uh, when I was the director of the Institute, I travelled quite a lot. So it's, um, I'm fed up with traveling. Yeah, you must have met so many interesting people during your career. What's yes, your, I have. Yeah, what's your most memorable interaction? Oh, that's a difficult question. I agree, I've met quite a number of personalities during all this year. What I really regret is that I didn't have a diary. Oh. And uh, I haven't probably forgotten a number of personalities that I met. I met once Nelson Mandela, that was fascinating. Mm. What did you talk about? Uh, barely. We, we talked about human rights and the importance of, of uh, developing human rights. Yeah, looking at the development of human rights, is there anything that has happened in the field um, that has surprised you? <coughs> During the, uh, the last let's say, the 30, 40 years. Yes, a number of things have happened. I think the, the standard, I mean, the various rights, the definition of the various rights, that, that, that was laid down fairly early and was more or less uh, ended by the 1980s. Of course, they had developed further on, but, but uh, uh, there were a lot of standards already existing. The problem, one problem is uh, that uh, one thing is to have standards, another thing is to have them implemented. And implementation of, of human rights have uh, turned out to be a problem, of course. And uh, But uh, I would say that the international community have become much more effective than it used to be. I mean, so human rights are relatively well uh, implemented. And there are instruments in order where you can... Um, perhaps not correct the situation, but to have, can have the situation improved. You can say that the, all the international instruments built upon a shame factor, meaning that uh, if you note that, if it is noted that in one particular country frequently violates human rights, they 
will be extremely bothered about that, and that helps. You can easily see that, uh, for instance, the reporting obligation under the various UN treaty bodies uh, lead to an improvement of the situation. It's constantly steps being taken uh, which lead to, to a better situation in the country. Human rights is, in that respect, much better implemented. It's easier to implement. The problem lies, though, in the, in the field of humanitarian law, mm. uh, that is to say the law of warfare, where a number of atrocities are being committed, but uh, frequently impunity mm. is being granted. And the impunity is a huge problem when it comes to, to uh, partly human rights, but in particular humanitarian law. And uh, state frequently grant impunity to the perpetrators. And then, there, of course, there is still another problem also, and that is an obstacle with both human rights and humanitarian law, namely co corruption. Mm. And uh, I think that the international community has must pay more attention to combat corruption, and because that's a huge problem in every country. And, and uh, I mean, that's an obstacle for the to accept to respect the rule of law, mm. uh, which at least all states consider that that important. But then we have a corrupted in a number of countries: corrupted police, corrupted judges, corrupted prosecutors, uh, and that constitutes a problem. A Jewish problem, and in a way, I think it has been neglected a little bit. So I think corruption, uh, the institute should deal, uh, devote more attention to corruption hmm. uh, and that, uh, how to combat that problem. Yeah, so looking ahead um, yes. for the institute. Yeah, I think that's it will be important for the institute to, to deal more with uh, uh, the problem of corruption. Hmm. And at large, what has to be done in the field of human rights? Yeah, I think we have to strengthen the, the even further on strengthen the implementation procedure or the implementation methods, uh, both with respect to human rights and not least with respect to humanitarian law. Uh, and and um, we have to face the problem of impunity, the problem of corruption, uh, and Another aspect, dissemination. Um, it might sound a little bit surprising, but lack of knowledge is a huge problem. Even in Sweden? Uh, even in Sweden. I'm rather convinced, for instance, when it comes to bullying, mm. which is a huge problem in Swedish schools. Yes. I do not believe that uh, it is a violation of human rights, sometimes at least, a violation of human rights. Uh, when Sweden will be held responsible. Mm. But what, for instance, a number of teachers don't know is that they might be responsible for, uh, they represent Sweden as a teacher and they will uh, to ex to not to uh, not do actions against bullying will be a violation of human rights, uh, which is for which Sweden will be responsible, but the person directly take, uh, acting in a way which means that Sweden will be uh, seen as violating human rights is the teacher. So that's and, not the case today. And he doesn't know it. Hmm. And I rather, I'm rather convinced that if he is aware of the fact that he, he oversees with bullying, hmm. Sweden will be accused of violating human rights. Hmm. Then I think he should perhaps take another attitude. 
uh, and try to stop or prevent any kind of bullying. Because it's, human rights is a very important uh, term. Mm. And, and uh, so I think it, it will be extremely embarrassing for the, for the teacher mm. if, for instance, European Court of Human Rights would, uh, in a judgment, decide that uh, Sweden has violated human rights and the teacher then realized that he is the one being responsible. Conclusion then, uh, educate teachers about uh, human rights. Mm. And of course, uh, so they must be aware of the fact that they they have a responsibility. And how about human rights integrated in the education of children? Of course, it should be. It, uh, it must be integrated into the education of children. But I'm rather convinced that the institute is not able to do that. Uh, without any doubt, teachers uh, must uh, are responsible to educate the children in the field of human rights. We are at best responsible to educate the teachers. And and uh, try to guarantee that the teachers are well equipped or, or have a knowledge in the field of human rights. And I'm quite convinced they do not have that. I know that in the curricula in all stages in Swedish schools, human rights is being mentioned. And uh, uh, it is expected that these pupils should be learned about human rights. I fear, though, that very few teachers are willing to teach human rights because of lack of knowledge. They don't know how to do it and don't know what is really meant by human rights. Uh, so I think uh, educating the teachers is an important task, even in Sweden, mm. uh, and of course in other countries as well. Yeah. It's amazing that you're still here. We're sitting at your office right now. Yeah. No, it's very nice to be here anyway. So I need to... I'm try, still trying to work a little bit, yeah. but it goes a little, of course, more slowly <laughs> than it used to be. And then, but it's also, I can, <coughs> I can do whatever I like, uh, and I'm doing it exactly, exactly what I, whatever I like. You're listening to On Human Rights today with Professor Jöran Melander, who founded the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. So thank you so much for joining us, Jöran. Thank you. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Roald Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Elin Williams and thank you so much for listening today. We'll be back soon when we talk to experts around the world on issues concerning human rights and humanitarian law.